Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We are glad you're joining us this week. We are super excited. We really do appreciate each and every one of you. And if you want to appreciate us, you could click follow on wherever you're listening to our podcast. It actually does really help us out a lot. Shameless plug. (laughs) But now I want to hear about your case, Christy. Yes, I think we should just get right into it. Before I do start, I want to ask a question. How much do you love where you live? Uh, it depends on the day. Is everything breaking down? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Melissa's had a wild week. Maybe not good timing asking her. But generally, I love where I live. Mm -hmm. I love where you live, too. (laughs) (laughs) It's so peaceful. It really is. But I just mean kind of in general. My second question to follow that up would be, what lengths would you go in order to protect where you live? I don't know. I'm not a fighter. (laughs) She's a lover. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) You can come live with me. I'll share. I would appreciate that. But if they put my family in danger, that's a whole nother story. Yeah, you don't poke mama bear. No. Absolutely. I think it is important to take pride in the place that you live. It is great to have roots and appreciate the beauty around you, no matter where you live. Many people serve their countries, their provinces and states in a positive and productive manner, often protecting and serving those who share the same land. To those people, we express our gratitude. The dirtbag in today's case takes the cake in regards to motive for becoming a serial killer. He believed that he had to kill people in order to save the golden state of California. Oh no, he's absolutely delusional. He really is. And he thought he was saving his state? He did. He wholeheartedly believed it. And just a little side note, I do have to say that I absolutely love California. Although I haven't been to a large amount of various states, California is definitely one of my most favorite states to visit. One of my daughters lived there for a time, and she also fell in love with it. I believe that we have the most listeners in this state than anywhere else in the world, followed very closely by Texas. So shout out to you all. Thanks for listening in California. We appreciate you. But pick it up, Texas. (laughs) You can do it. We want at least a tie. But seriously, no matter where you are listening, we appreciate it. Every one of you mean a lot to us. We really do appreciate it. The serial killer we will be discussing was active in 1972 and 1973, which coincided with the notorious co-ed killer Edmund Kemper. This posed a challenge for the California police to have two active serial killers on the loose at the same time. I bet you I don't know anything about this killer, Christy. Well, you might not. Many true crime fans will already be familiar with this case, but I don't think the general public is as much. I wonder if this case isn't talked about as much because of how much press Kemper got. In my opinion, this case is just as horrific. That being said, as a little bonus, I will be including some statements made by Edmund Kemper regarding today's dirtbag. They were housed in the same prison and got to know one another, and it is quite fascinating to hear Kemper talk about their interactions. I always find it so fascinating when two dirtbags collide in prison and have an opinion about one another. Right. Not often do you get to hear what one serial killer thinks about the next. But today you're going to. That's exactly what happened in last week's case as well. 
That's true. If you guys haven't checked that one out yet, it's a wild ride. You should. And you get to hear some serial killers' opinions of each other. Right. Today's case is also quite the ride. So get comfy, get a little snack, and prepare yourself for a case that is sure to have you scratching your head. I am curious what Melissa, as well as you, our listeners, are going to think about this one. Was our dirtbag not criminally responsible for his actions, or was he calculated and knew exactly what he was doing? Either way, his actions were definitely abhorrent. Oh, I hate these debating ones. Actually, secretly, I love them. You do love them. (laughs) It's not a secret to anybody listening, (laughs) Melissa. I just hate fence sitting. Or maybe I really love it. (laughs) No. (laughs) You're sitting on the fence without fence sitting. (laughs) I think you just proved your own point. Okay. I didn't realize I was doing it. I hate fence sitting. Actually, maybe I love it. I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence. Whoops. I was trying to decide. It's like saying how much you hate chocolate ice cream while downing a bowl of chocolate ice cream. Oh, now my makeup's going to run. I really can't decide. Like, I like the debate about it. It's interesting. You do. Yeah. So you like fence sitting. Okay. <laughs> or maybe it's just the debate, having one side of the fence or the other. Right. I don't like having to decide. Maybe that's why I'm a fence sitter. I find you always want to give someone the benefit of the doubt. You're so kind. <laughs> I just need all the facts. <laughs> that's true. Either way, we know he was a dirtbag. Absolutely. Our dirtbag of the week is Herbert William Mullen. He was born in Salinas, Monterey County, California on April 18th, 1947. He went by the name of Herb or Herbie. I will refer to him as Herb throughout the case. Herb's father, Martin William Mullen, was strict but far from abusive. He was born in Portland and was a captain for the U.S. Army during World War II. Martin, or Bill as they called him, was considered a World War II hero. Herb's father spent time with him, telling him war stories and teaching him how to box and shoot a gun. Typical things that a war vet father might have done with his son in the 50s. Herb's mother, Jean Claire Baker, was born in California. She and Bill had a daughter, Patricia, before Herb was born. When Herb was five, his family moved from a farming area to San Francisco. And another little side note, my sister and I took my grandma to San Francisco for her 90th birthday, and we loved it there. If you haven't been, it's a fun little holiday spot. It is definitely on my list. I think you and I need to go together. Oh, that would be so much fun. I would absolutely go again. I loved San Francisco. And so did my grandma. When we came home for months, she would check the weather there every day just to see. (laughs) It's a great little place. In San Francisco, Bill worked as a furniture salesman. Herb and his sister attended parochial school, which means a private religious school. Herb was described as being smart and having a gentle nature. The family was viewed as typical. There were no apparent red flags. That being said, Herb would later tell a different account. While in high school, in 1963 at the age of 16, the Mullen family moved to Felton, a small town in Santa Cruz County, known for its beautiful redwoods. They initially lived in his aunt and uncle's cabin until they found a house. I love redwoods. Oh, you can go visit them in San Francisco. Mm. Gorgeous. That's another reason I have to get there. Mm-hmm. I'm serious. Let's go together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You might think that moving a teenage boy halfway through high school could be a huge mistake. Many would find it challenging to make new friends. However, this definitely was not the case for Herb. Herb's popularity quickly grew. He had no problem making friends and was considered part of the in-crowd. 
He had a steady girlfriend, he got good grades, and played for the varsity football team. Was he charismatic? I would say that he was. Herb was not a large guy by any means, but it was said that he was a talented football player, which just added to his popularity. Mm. But he seemed kind of more of a, just a kind and gentle soul. That's a shocking description for somebody that becomes a serial killer later on. It's true. There's a lot of polarity that takes place in this case. In 1965, Herb graduated from San Lorenzo Valley High School and was voted most likely to succeed. Oh, how wrong they all would be. It is sad. Herb had the world at his fingertips, but emerging mental health illness, gone untreated and aggravated by substance abuse, would be his downfall. It's always so sad when that happens, and we see it over and over again in the cases we cover. It's very true, which means that it could have possibly been preventable. And that's what makes it even more sad, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree. Because of his good grades, Herb was accepted into Cabrillo College's engineering program. He was scheduled to start in the fall after graduation. During the summer, after graduating and before college started, something would happen that would set off a ripple effect in Herb's life. Herb's best friend in the world was a guy named Dean Richardson. Sadly, that summer, June of 65, Dean was killed in a car accident. Oh, Herb was absolutely devastated over losing his friend. He struggled to deal with such a huge loss. To try and ease his pain, Herb built a shrine inside his bedroom to his friend. He became depressed and would just sit all alone in his room with the shrine for hours thinking of Dean. And were his family reaching out to him trying to help him? I don't know the specifics on that, but he did come from a pretty loving family. That would have been difficult. Mm Mm-hmm. Herb was desperately trying to figure out what the reasoning was behind his friend's death. He believed there had to be a purpose. Herb was raised Catholic, but he soon became interested in Eastern religions. This is when his belief in reincarnation began. Herb started to believe that Dean's death had to be part of a cosmic sacrifice. So kind of like, to ease his pain, he had to believe it had to mean something. He couldn't have just died suddenly for no reason. That makes sense. It's a coping technique. Totally. In the fall, Herb started school in engineering. He would later graduate with a two-year degree in road engineering. He then enrolled at San Jose State College and changed his major to philosophy. But just two months later, he dropped out. In spring of 1966, Herb had a chance encounter with a guy named Jim Ralph Gianera. They played football together in high school and were mutual friends with Dean. Herb didn't know it at the time, but he would later go on to blame his future actions in part on his rekindled interactions with Jim Gianera. It was said that Jim gave Herb some marijuana, the first joint he ever had, and began preaching to him about the anti-war movement. Herb began regularly using weed and eventually other drugs like acid. He said about Jim, quote, Gianera spearheaded a movement to befuddle and confuse me. If Gianera had given me some Benzedrine instead, I would have become an artist. In Herb's mind, Jim had harmed Herb's brain with the drugs he gave him. In actuality, it was his mental illness that was emerging, which the drugs just added to. Herb began using more hallucinogenic drugs like LSD in 1966 and became paranoid about earthquakes hitting California. He pulled away from his longtime caring girlfriend. They split for six months in 1966, got back together at the beginning of 1967, got engaged, and then when he told her that he might be bisexual, they broke it off for good in March of 1968. Oh, that's a lot going on in his life. It is. After this, it was said that he developed violent tendencies. 
We know that a number of mental health illnesses can begin to become symptomatic when a person reaches their early adulthood. This would seem to be the case for Herb. And my understanding is that sometimes you can be born with a condition but not see signs of it until later in life. For schizophrenia, it is believed to be a combination of genetics as well as some sort of trigger later in life. At this point, Herb had two triggers, drug use and the traumatic event of suddenly losing his best friend. The Mullen family began to notice changes in Herb. Herb's father was a war hero and was upset to learn that Herb, who once wanted to join the military himself, was now a proclaimed conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. Around this same time, in 1968, Herb had his first sexual experience with a man. The family were fairly certain that their son, who was voted most likely to succeed, had fallen into a world of drugs, which was quickly growing in popularity in California in the 1960s. You can see how they would be confused about what was happening to their son, that his two issues that are going on, the drug use and the schizophrenia, kind of mask each other. And so it's difficult for anybody else to see past the drugs and see that he actually has a mental health issue going on as well. That's so true, because they would just blame his actions on the drug use. Mm -hmm. I can totally see that happening. And it was kind of a big thing. There were marijuana farms and acid labs in the area, and it was making news headlines. There was one I read about, I think it was like a five-year-old kid taking drugs to school or something like that. It was making big news. However, the biggest tip-off to his family might have been the tattoo that Herb got across his stomach that said, legalize acid. (laughs) He wasn't hiding it. (laughs) But it does mean that they're not going to be looking for other sources of his delusions. Not at first. Mm -hmm. By the time he was eventually arrested, he had other tattoos as well. He also had one that said, eagle eyes marijuana one that said birth, and Mahashamadi, which is a Hindu word to describe when a soul intentionally leaves a body during death, and Kriya Yoga, which mixes yoga with meditation. Aside from his tattoos, one incident in particular caused Herb's family to raise their eyebrows and really question if their family member was okay. Herb's sister had invited him over for dinner. While they were eating, Herb began shadowing his brother-in-law. If his brother-in-law picked up his fork with his left hand, so did Herb. If he took a drink with his right hand, so did Herb. If he said something, Herb repeated it. He was essentially imitating his every move. About this, Herb's sister said, quote, When my husband would eat, Herb would eat. Whatever my husband would do, Herb would do. And that went on for hours. Then he just sat and stared at us. I imagine this would have been quite unsettling for them. This wasn't the playful game of mimicking the way we all did for a few minutes to annoy your siblings when you were kids. This was sometime in 1969, which meant Herb would have been around 22 years old. That sounds like something my kids would do. They would, but when they're kids. And not for two hours. Yeah, it was multiple hours. Uh, It would be hard to take him seriously. It would. But do you remember doing that with our brothers? Absolutely. We totally did too. And it was so annoying when they would do it to you. But it wasn't in a joking, annoying way. He was just legitimately mimicking every single move and then when he stopped he just sat there and stared ahead so he was dead serious the whole time yes so rightfully so it freaked them out what also would have freaked them out is that at some point herb asked his sister to have sex with him and when she said no he asked her husband what yeah the day after this happened his family took him to the mendocino state mental hospital and herb freely checked himself in This ordeal with the brother-in-law can be known as echolalia or exopraxia. Both conditions can be a symptom of various conditions, which includes schizophrenia. 
Herb stayed at the hospital for six weeks. They said he had schizophrenia that was aggravated by drug use. They gave him medication to help treat his condition, but when he left the hospital, he did not comply with his treatment, and doctors labeled his prognosis as poor. That's too bad. Mm-hmm. In the summer of 69, he went to South Lake Tahoe and got a job as a dishwasher at a gambling resort called Harvey's Wagon Wheel, a place where you can still lodge and gamble. Not long after that, in August of 69, he went back to Santa Cruz. One day, a park ranger found him sitting in the woods on the ground in a zoned-out state. He just sat there looking forward. When the ranger questioned him, he continued to just stare in front of himself, but slowly began to reach for a hunting knife that was by his side. The trained ranger was able to stop him before he grabbed the knife. He took him to the local jail, but Herb was essentially just let go. It should have been a hospital. It should have been. And this would just be the beginning of multiple stints in police custody, as well as continued psychiatric hospital stays for Herb. After getting picked up for pulling a knife on a park ranger, he started a treatment program at a community center in Santa Cruz. I believe a lot of his arrests pertain to drug use, starting with a charge in April of 68 for possession of marijuana. He got probation and began working at a Goodwill store, eventually becoming manager of the San Luis Obispo location. That's surprising. I know. Herb was eventually granted official conscientious objector status, which I believe means a pardon from serving in the armed forces. His father wrote a letter saying that Herb was, quote unquote, peacefully minded. So the forces took his time spent working at the Goodwill as alternate service. That's kind of cool that he couldn't serve his country in a combat capacity, but he was still serving at the Goodwill. Right. But his father had been high up in the army before. And I think it would have been a hard thing for him to do because it was kind of more so part of the anti-war movement at the time that was taking place. And so it was more about being against the war than, oh, I can't serve in the war. Oh, so his father kind of hid it and said, look, he's serving somewhere else because he has these health issues. He just said he was peacefully minded. Interesting. Yeah. Which would have been probably hard for his father to do. So to me, that speaks to how much he did love his son. Mm -hmm. to write that letter in support of him to become a conscientious objector. Yeah, that would have been hard. Mm -hmm. Herb began meditating and said that he would receive messages. As part of his meditation ritual, he would sometimes burn the end of his penis with a lit cigarette. What? Yeah, I don't know how that would make you feel very zen, but that is what he did. What? Yeah. Ow. <laughs> Was he getting off on it? No, I think it was just part of the meditation. Really? Because mm -hmm. there are people that have that sexual fetish of manipulating or mutilating the penis head or sticking things up inside that actually they get pleasure from. This is the only account of something like this. And none of his murders have any kind of sexual tone to them at all. Really? Yeah. So I really think it was just part of his meditation ritual. And how often did he meditate? Well, at this point, he was doing it pretty regularly. I don't know how often he was actually burning himself, but it said it was multiple times. How did he not get an infection? I don't know. I just don't even know how you do that. Like, how no. much that would hurt. That is bizarre. My assumption would be that it had something to do with overcoming pain. Like a self-mutilation? No, I don't think so. I think it was, I'm just guessing here, but I think it was about overcoming the pain, how much more powerful your mind can be than your body. Okay. It wasn't like a release. It could have been, but just with what I've researched about him, I don't necessarily think that that's what it was. But maybe. Well, that is an interesting tidbit, Christy. Yep. 
I never thought I would hear that one. (laughs) I didn't think I would write that in a sentence ever. (laughs) After trying to convince a male roommate to sleep with him, he was again sent to a psychiatric hospital in October of 69. This roommate's uncle just so happened to be a psych doctor. And at the time, any form of same-sex attraction was commonly chalked up to being due to a mental disorder. His stay in the hospital this time caused the doctor to conclude about Herb that, quote, As a result of mental disorder, said person is a danger to others, a danger to himself, and gravely disabled. So they kept him in the hospital. Well, he was. He was treated for eight weeks at the psychiatric ward of San Luis Obispo County General Hospital. During this stay, he asked his parents to write him as many letters as they could. When his parents came to visit him, he told them that he was gay. So this would kind of continue where he would have an episode of something that would happen and then he would end up back in a psychiatric hospital. And he would receive treatment, get better, and then get back out on his own again. Exactly. It was a vicious cycle. After leaving a hospital in 1970, he immediately went job hunting while still wearing his hospital gown. Oh, no. (laughs) They let him out of the hospital in his hospital gown? Yeah. Or had he escaped? No, it was said he was... Did he sign himself out? Who leaves the hospital in their hospital clothes if you're feeling well? That's a really good question. I'm not sure the particulars, but he did leave wearing his hospital gown and was like, okay, I got to get a job and just immediately went looking for a job. Probably because they were talking in group about, you know, when we're moving past the hospital, a good thing to do is get a job. And so I'm totally speculating here, but I'm guessing that he became obsessed with, okay, I need to get out of the hospital, so I need to get a job. Right. That's the next thing I need to go do. Yeah. So no time to go home and change. Just start going into businesses and see if they're hiring. And did he get a job? He has jobs off and on throughout his whole... But in his hospital. Oh, I don't know. Did he find a know, job? <laughs> Would you hire someone no. in a hospital gown? No, everyone looked at him and thought he was too cheeky. <laughs> but um bump. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that would have been quite the sight. On another occasion, when his parents had picked him up from the airport, he freaked them out so much that they had to pull over and call the police. And just to explain about this incident in the car, Herb had gone to Hawaii with an older woman that he met at a commune. He wanted to move into the commune, but they rejected him. He went to a hospital in Hawaii and was diagnosed with schizoaffective schizophrenia. It was after this flight home from Hawaii that his parents had picked him up at the airport and he had an outburst in the car. But it had freaked them out so much that they had to pull over and call the police. Herb got a job washing dishes at the Holiday Inn, but eventually quit and started to collect government assistance, which he used to move out from his parents' home and into a hotel. Oh, so he did eventually put some clothes on. Yes. I think clothes are required when you're washing dishes at the Holiday Inn. Just a hunch. Hopefully. Hopefully. I've stayed at the Holiday Inn. I'm hoping they're wearing clothes. (laughs) Maybe not at every kind of hotel, but hopefully at the Holiday Inn. Herb seemed to go back and forth to the extremes on his beliefs and stances that he would take in life. He was a fence sitter. (laughs) At one point, he shaved his head and ate a strict macrobiotic diet to lose weight. He did yoga and would meditate. Next, he wore a sombrero and attempted to use a Mexican accent, believing he was biracial, which he wasn't. Later, he tried to convince an Asian woman to have a biracial child with him, and then got violent when she refused. He was against the war and violence, but then tried to join the Marines and became a boxer. During a boxing match, Herb would not stop hitting the man he was fighting against and had to be torn off of the guy. He was against violence, but he liked violence? That's what I mean. He would contradict himself. 
He also would hit the speed bag while training until his knuckles bled, and then would sometimes just stand in the middle of the gym and start loudly talking to himself. When he lost his first match, he went home and started loudly screaming at God and punched the floor of his apartment so incessantly that it got him evicted. After fighting with God, he wanted to become a priest for a time, but that fizzled out as well. During one of his court proceedings for petty crimes, Herb declared that he was by everything, bisexual, bicultural, biracial, bispiritual, and bipolitical. He really was a fence-sitter. He really was. You could just see that he was really struggling. Herb said that he hated the whole hippie movement, but then when in front of a judge, he demanded that marijuana and LSD be legalized. He was clearly floundering. Herb had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia disorder for quite some time at this point. However, he had gone off of his medication. Lack of treatment mixed with his drug use seemed to increase the severity of his condition. It is said that this combination can be a recipe for psychosis. Yeah, marijuana can increase schizophrenia by up to seven times. Seven times? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's more than I even thought. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Wow. That is shocking because it's considered such a mild drug. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned something. Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, no problem. Glad I did all that research a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. It's great to co-host with a registered nurse. <laughs> Knowing that fact, I guess, gives us a little more insight on Herb. He continued to get arrested for drug use, spend time in jail, get his charges dropped, and then be hospitalized, only to be released to do it all over again. He was rapidly slipping through the cracks. On top of this, his home life was unstable. He tried to go back to college, but that didn't pan out. He began working for Goodwill again, but this time driving a truck. He got angry at his parents and changed his life insurance policy so that UNICEF would be his beneficiary. He got kicked out of the mental health clinic program for failure to attend the group therapy sessions. In May of 71, Herb moved into an apartment building that you might feel nervous just walking past. It was filled with criminals, alcoholics, drug addicts, and mental health patients. At this apartment, he met a man named Alan Hansen, who shared his belief in reincarnation. Alan went along with Herb's beliefs that the voices he was hearing was actually telepathy and that it meant he was chosen by God to do something special. It's so interesting because he's got such a high intellect that he's seeking out reasons to explain what's happening to him. Yes. Or that's what it seems like anyway. It's true. He was a smart guy. To confirm this notion, Herb discovered that Albert Einstein had died on April 18th, Herb's birthday, just in a different year. This shared day proved to Herb that he had a special mission on this earth. One day, Herb discovered that a scientist was predicting that a super large earthquake was going to destroy California in the near future. Most people didn't seem to take to heart what this scientist was saying. Many considered him a quack, except for Herb. He would become fixated on the ultimate demise of his state. April 18th, Herb's birthday and Einstein's death date, was also the anniversary of a horrific earthquake that took place in San Francisco in 1906 confirming his vocation on earth. (laughs) Can you imagine if you just take your birthday and plot it in and just Google what's happened on this day? How many different things you could actually say happened? Yeah, and how you can take something and make it fit your agenda, fit your belief. During 1971, Herb was living in San Francisco, but by September of 72, at age 25, he moved back in with his parents. He was hoping for a fresh start. He got a job as a busboy, but his anger grew towards his father, which we'll get into more later during his confession. 
Sadly, a fresh start was far from what was about to take place just a month after moving back in with his mom and dad. Herb began studying death statistics. He believed that when death rates were down, natural disasters would go up, meaning that if people didn't die naturally on their own, God would send a disaster, like an earthquake, to even out the population. Can you see his brain working? This is crazy. Yeah. He's using statistical analysis to justify murder. Yes. Interesting. Herb also noticed that when death rates were up, there were not as many natural disasters. This uh, is fascinating, it actually. It really is. I'm like, mm, is there some merit to this? I didn't go in and look for the statistics on it, but this is what he found. But it's just an interesting observation if that's true. It is. But it just goes to show you how easy it is to pull data to get the conclusions that you want. Oh, yeah. To fit your agenda. Uh-huh. Definitely. You can ask any question on the internet and find opposite articles to support both views. Mm-hmm. Herb began to believe that if he sacrificed the lives of others as the chosen one, God would hold back allowing an earthquake to level California. On the flip side, if he didn't take the lives of some, God would take the lives of many. Herb would later say on the stand that he was, quote, chosen as the designated leader of his generation. As the leader, he had to make sure enough people would die in order to prevent an earthquake. So is he working in cahoots with God, apparently, or is he in opposition to God? No, he believes he's working with God, that okay. he's been chosen by God to do this. But he's frotting God's efforts to carry out population control. Well, kind of the idea that if I kill enough people, God won't feel the need to cause a natural disaster. I will satisfy his bloodlust. It's fascinating because he's talking about working alongside God, that he's this chosen one. and yet. In the same sentence, he's also talking about interfering with God's plan. Like, it's God's plan to just, when the population gets too high, I'm just going to knock them out. Right. And yet he's interfering with it. Correct. But in his mind, he's probably thinking that's just a natural consequence. If not enough people die, then God has to do that. So if I kill enough people, God doesn't have to do that. Okay. So he thinks he's been sent by God. Right. So he believes he's probably a hero. Because he's going to save everybody in California by sacrificing a few. Which is really not that crazy of a thought in society. There's lots of societies historically that have practiced sacrifice for that exact same reason. You sacrifice one to save many. Oh, true. In the past. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an original thought that he's having. No. And he has checked out the statistics. He thinks he's got that to back him up. He's hearing these voices. He thinks that's God. He's seen all these coincidences proving to him. He thinks he has concrete proof that this has to happen. Yeah. It's just wild to me that he's using actual academics to back up his delusions. Right. Which I think would make him that much more headstrong in his actions. Mm -hmm. It's giving him the evidence to prove that he's right. Yeah. Scary. It is. Herb said that he could communicate with people telepathically, which means supposedly being capable of transmitting thoughts to other people without speaking and being able to know their thoughts. He believed that his father had told him telepathically that he had to be the one to carry out these human sacrifices. He also said that his victims would tell him, mind to mind, without words, that they were willing to be sacrificed to save California from destruction. Oh, man. So then he doesn't even really feel bad about it because he feels like they're volunteering. By making eye contact with him. No, telling him telepathically. How does he choose which one's telling him telepathically in the street? Well, we'll go through each one. 
I'm going to go through the murders, and then we will circle back to this notion when we discuss the trial. Herb would murder 13 innocent people in exactly four months, October 13th, 1972 to February 13th, 1973. He committed his first murder on a Friday the 13th, eight years before the movie of that title would be made. Herb said that for about a week prior to this, his father had been sending him telepathic messages to begin killing people. He said, quote, if I didn't kill, it would bring shame to the family by showing cowardice. It was kill or get out. So his father wasn't actually saying this to him, but he believed his father was telling him this telepathically. Interesting. Did the dates have significance for him? I don't know. I didn't read any other sources that kind of made that connection. But for me, it stood out 13 people from the 13th to the 13th. I was even dividing how many days, like, could it be a multiple of 13 in between? But that part didn't pan out. See, I was looking for statistics to prove it. (laughs) So I don't know if that had any significance, because I think he would have continued to kill. Mm. He just got caught after the last victim. Exactly. Interestingly, I just watched this YouTuber talk about the significance of 13. There's this whole thing about the number 13 and how important the number 13 is in our natural world. Well, and just how 13 is considered unlucky. Like a lot of buildings don't even have a 13th floor. Right. It's interesting that he picked the 13th of the month to start. Yeah. And the Friday the 13th. Yeah. But that was, like I said, eight years before the movie. Mm -hmm. And he killed 13 people. Do you think he was going to go on and kill more? I don't know. Some people think that his last one, he purposely messed up so he would be caught. It's kind of poetic with all the 13s. That's what I'm thinking. And he's so intelligent. Like, did that happen by accident? I don't know. The number 13 does mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. It's very true. And Friday the 13th, being unlucky, did not start with the movie. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting fact, especially since he's so academic. Yeah, and so statistical and methodical in that way. Mm -hmm. I guess only Herb knows. (laughs) Honestly, I didn't even see anything else that even pointed this out about the 13th. It's interesting because he was so into dates proving other things that it seems that he would choose a date that was significant. And maybe he thought 13 people was what had to be killed. Mm -hmm. On Friday, October 13th, Herb grabbed a baseball bat from their garage, hopped into his 58 Chevy station wagon, and set out for a drive. Herb drove along a damp, twisty road through the redwood trees close to the river. He drove until he saw 55-year-old Lawrence White, whom people called Whitey, walking alone along the road. Herb drove a little ways ahead of Whitey and then pulled over to the side of the road. He got out and popped his hood to make it look like he was having car trouble. He's luring him in. Yes. Being a good Samaritan, when Whitey approached Herb, he offered to take a look at his engine. Herb promised him a ride for his help. While bent over looking at the engine, Herb grabbed his bat and began clubbing Whitey in the head with it. He hit him hard and didn't stop until Whitey was dead. Once finished, he took Whitey's body and rolled it down the side of the road where it wouldn't be immediately seen. Herb said after doing this, quote, Then the ball was rolling. Whitey was a homeless man who battled alcohol addiction. Unfortunately, this would make it difficult for anyone to even realize that he was missing. His body was discovered a few days later, but his death barely made headlines and no one from his family showed up to his funeral. Did they identify him right away? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. I just found that really sad. It is sad. Police did not seem too stressed over finding his killer at first. He was in and out of the drunk tank and often slept in the woods or under a bridge. It was said that everyone just made an assumption about his death. 
but it was not his addiction lifestyle that caused his death. He was murdered by a dirtbag while trying to do a good deed. Herb would later go on a ramble about Jonah from the Bible and said that Whitey looked like Jonah and said to him telepathically, quote, Hey man, pick me up and throw me over the boat. Kill me so that others will be saved. What Herb seemed to forget about his Bible studies when he wanted to become a priest was that Jonah didn't die. He was freed from the whale and ended up going to Nineveh, which, by the way, is one of the funniest, best Bible stories, in my opinion. Because <laughs> the whale spits him out. Yeah. And he goes to Nineveh. He does what he's told. <laughs> but Whitey did have this big, long white beard, long white hair. And he was like, oh, he looks like Jonah. I'm sorry. But how does he know what Jonah looks like? Well, he does talk to God, remember? Oh, okay. Yeah. When you do look at a picture of Whitey, though, you could see like, oh, yeah, he does look like someone from the Bible. Okay. 11 days later, on October 24th, Herb would strike again. This time he targeted a 24-year-old woman named Mary Margaret Guilfoyle. She would be the most gruesome of all his murders. Herb read a biographical novel on Michelangelo called The Agony and the Ecstasy by Irving Stone. In this book, he learned that the great artist Michelangelo used to participate in public dissections to fully understand the human body and improve his art. Herb's mom had apparently given him this book, hoping that it would inspire her son to use art as a way of coping with his mental illness. Instead, he used it to fuel his savage killing spree. That would have been a sad realization for his mom. Oh, totally. Herb would say that Michelangelo was so much better than everyone else at his art because he had studied the human body. He said it gave him insight in creating his art. Herb later blamed what he did to Mary on his mother. He said she was telling him to dissect a body by giving him the book. According to him, she wanted him to have the same insights as Michelangelo. Yeah, he's just coming up with stuff now. Oh, yeah. Well, I think just he's thinking everything as a sign. Mm -hmm. Mary was a student and had a job interview on this day. Unfortunately, she was running late. She worried that if she showed up for the interview late, she surely wouldn't get the job. The media had been warning young women about hitchhiking, but she was desperate. In a cruel twist of fate, Mary put out her thumb on a busy road near Cabrillo Community College, hoping to hop a ride to her interview. Sadly, she was only a few blocks away from where Herb lived with his family. He pulled up beside her, and she got into his station wagon. Herb did not look threatening. He had a small frame and was said to be soft-spoken. He was also a decent-looking guy. But I will say that as he ages, he looks like a different person from stage to stage. His looks change a lot throughout the years. But at 24 and 25, he had big eyes and a kind face. And we need to remember that anyone can kill you, even the cute and gentle ones. Not to blame Mary at all, but just a thing for us to remember. To try and avoid dirtbags, it's important that we know that anybody can be a dirtbag. That's right. Once Herb had Mary in his car, he drove off the main road onto a quieter one. He stopped the car and pulled out his hunting knife. Before she could escape, Herb plunged his knife into her chest and then into her back, killing her pretty much instantly. Wanting to be like Michelangelo, Herb took Mary's body into a remote area and began dissecting her. I won't go into all the grisly details, but he basically pulled out and detangled her organs. Let's just say he got a good look at everything, even her bones. Oh, no. He also wanted to see how pollution was affecting the insides of our bodies. He inspected this pollution by hanging Mary's intestines from the tree branches to get a good look at them. 
That would have been a grisly sight to see. I can't imagine the people who eventually come across this. Afterwards, he scattered her pieces along the side of a remote hillside road. Many believe that this killing freaked Herb out because he never dissected another person. That being said, he did continue to kill. It would take months for Mary's body to be found, giving Herb lots of leadway to avoid the police. And I need to mention a huge complication in Mary's investigation. Remember when I said that serial killer Edmund Kemper, the co-ed killer, was also on his rampage during the same time as Herb, making it harder for police? Well, Herb and Ed were not the only two vicious dirtbag killers terrorizing the same area of California at the same time. California in the 70s was pretty much infested with killers, it seems. Isn't it the serial killer capital of the world? It is. Yeah, for this reason. And especially in the 70s -hmm. and early 80s. Kemper had been targeting female hitchhikers. He would rape and murder them. Many of them he would decapitate. When Mary's body turned up, police weren't sure if she was another one of his victims, even though she didn't totally match his M.O. Because the first two killings of Herbs were so different, and because Mary wasn't found right away, there really wasn't a reason to connect the bludgeoning of a homeless man and the horrific dissection of a female hitchhiker together. Yeah, because the victim types aren't matching. No, and this will continue throughout his whole murder spree. Does he continue just to be sporadic about it? Like he's not planning who these victims are going to be. Sometimes he does. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. His MO changes. His MO was all over the place. No wonder they didn't connect it all to one person then. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you can't blame the police in this one. And with having so many other killers on the loose at the same time, I don't know how they figured anything out. Either way, Herb was obviously not too disturbed over his first two murders. He was on a mission. He would strike again nine days later on November 2nd. In Roman Catholic religion, November 2nd is a significant day, All Souls Day. According to Wikipedia, All Souls Day is a day for commemoration of the faithful departed, those baptized Christians who are believed to be in purgatory because they died with the guilt of lesser sins on their souls. Herb had a tumultuous relationship with religion. He had at one point studied the Bible and wanted to become a priest. He was an altar boy growing up, and his mother said that he was deeply religious. On the flip side, he had been thrown out of a Catholic church for barging in during a service in 1970 and proclaiming that they were all doing it wrong. Plus, he believed he had to kill to stop God from killing more. He also believed that he could change the quote-unquote spiritual nature of the world. On this day, it was said that Herb entered St. Mary's Catholic Church in Los Gatos, not far from Santa Cruz. It's hard to believe that his dates don't all have significance. Yeah. He said his intention on entering was to gain strength to never attempt to kill again. He wanted to confess. Herb said he had been drinking, but I am unsure of his intoxication level. When he first entered, the church appeared empty. That was until he heard someone else in the church with him. Inside his confessional was 65-year-old priest Father Henry Tomei. Dirtbike Herb thought this meant he should kill Father Tomei. It was surely a sign. Because he was in a confessional? Isn't that where the priest sits? (laughs) Well, just that he wasn't alone in the church, that the priest was actually there as well. But that's not far-fetched to think that a priest would be in the church. Right. Especially on All Souls Day. To hear people's confessions. Yes. Yes. Because people want to get that off of their chests so that they don't end up in purgatory like the other people that they're commemorating on All Souls Day. It's hard to believe that he didn't think somebody would be there. (laughs) Right. He must have known. We're just going with his confession. Okay. And he's pretty open. Like, he doesn't seem to hide things, but who knows. Herb began trying to open the confessional door. 
He was making a lot of noise, and so Father Tomei opened the door to see what was going on. At this point, Herb trapped Father Tomei from leaving the tiny space and began stabbing him in the heart with his hunting knife. He later said he only brung the knife into the church with him for protection. To me, this does speak of premeditation because I don't recall ever needing to take a hunting knife into church with me for protection. Mm-hmm. Father Tomei tried to fight off his attacker, but to no avail. Herb viciously stabbed him to death through his heart. Herb said that Father Tomei volunteered to be his next sacrifice. Of course he did. As Herb was stabbing and brutally beating on Father Tomei, a parishioner entered the church and saw a man dressed all in black stabbing the priest. This woman screamed and ran out faster than she had entered. Conveniently, he's dressed all in black too. Yes. Unfortunately, this woman did not get a good look at Herb. He did, though, however, leave a fingerprint behind this time. Police just didn't have anyone to connect the print to yet. Many people attended the priest's funeral, including civic leaders and the police. The police were hoping that the perp who did this would show up to the funeral, but Herb stayed far away. Father Tomei had been a hero in World War II in the French Resistance Movement. He was loved by many in the community. The members of the community feared that Father Tomei had been killed by a member of a satanic cult. Again, there was no reason to connect this murder to the previous two, nor was there any reason to suspect Herb Mullen. This murder is one of the first ones to suggest that perhaps good old Herbie wasn't killing just to stop earthquakes. Yeah, there were so many parts of that murder that indicated it was premeditated. I agree. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that because there's more than just this one that might suggest that. Psychologist Donald Lund suggests that this murder upset Herb the most and had more to do with his inner struggle with his own strict religious father. This idea is supported by his actions afterwards. Dr. Lund pointed out that Herb had a quote-unquote kill-and-make-up pattern. After killing the priest, who may or may not have been a proxy kill for his father, Herb was desperate to please his father. He thought he could make his father proud if he joined the military, especially after becoming a conscientious objector, a regret he would continue to struggle with. Herb immediately applied to the Coast Guard. He made it to the psychological exam before getting rejected. He did not pass the psych evaluation. That is not a big surprise. It's not. But did they get him help? Or they were like, we just don't want you. I think they just rejected him. But he was persistent. In the new year, Herb applied to the Marine Corps. This time he passed the required testing. What? The physical and the psychological tests. But then he refused to sign a document that would allow the Marines to have access to his criminal record. He felt like the charges against him should have been dropped and didn't want the Marines to know about his past. Because of this refusal on his part, Herb was rejected from the Marines. Which is probably a good thing. Can you imagine training him to use a gun? No, his father had already taught him. But then he would have access. Exactly. And a reason to be killing people. Mm -hmm. Herb later said if he hadn't been rejected from the armed forces, he wouldn't have become a serial killer. But he had already reached serial killer status by this point. A little bit too late. Mm -hmm. And we will definitely see this throughout where he doesn't take responsibility for his actions. It's everybody else's fault. Yeah, it started with, I have to kill for God. Yes. Therefore, God's fault. Right. And if the Marines had just let me in, then I wouldn't have been able to kill people. Mm. In between these two attempts at joining the armed forces, on December 16th, 1972, Herb purchased a gun. He later said his reason for this was Albert Einstein. He read a book titled Einstein on Peace that prompted this notion. In the book, it stated that all adult men in Switzerland kept a gun for protection and were part of the militia. 
Herb was one third Scandinavian, so he felt like he too needed a gun. <laughs> okay. It was said that one of the other reasons he decided to buy a gun was he was going to kill a fellow drug user that he used to hang out with named John Hooper. But when he got to his house, there were nine people there and he knew a hunting knife would not be sufficient if he needed to kill a group. So he needed a gun. It's so interesting to follow his logic and his reasoning. Yes. But I'm glad that he gave such detailed accounts so that we could. Because this is just so off the wall. It is to us, but I can see how in his head it's all making sense. Right. To us, there's no rhyme or reason, but he has a reason for everything that he did. On his application to purchase the gun, he said his occupation was a sketch artist and he lied about ever being in a psychiatric ward. That just tells me he knows what he's doing is wrong. Exactly. To make matters worse, Herb's father told him that it was time for him to move out on his own. He was only a few months shy from turning 26. His parents had also had enough of their son constantly criticizing them in their own home. Apparently, when he was rejected by the Marine Corps, he came home and blamed his parents for doing such a crappy job at raising him. And really, it sounds like they've just been super supportive of him. Yeah, they really have. He moved out into a rundown apartment and told his parents he would keep trying to get into the military and find a job. He also stopped taking drugs. He just quit cold turkey? Mm-hmm. That's impressive. It was. It talks about his discipline. Yes. That's why he could burn his penis. I was just thinking that. <laughs> Herb began to spiral further out of control and lost even more of his grasp on reality. He felt like his rejection from the military was a conspiracy against him, and his paranoia grew. He needed someone other than himself to blame, so he decided that the quote-unquote war-resisting hippies were to blame for the mess his life was currently in. He felt like they had brainwashed him into becoming a conscientious objector and had introduced him to drugs, which also ruined his life. In fact, they had used the drugs as a way to brainwash him. In reality, the drugs had made his paranoid schizophrenia blossom. Mm -hmm. The voices were telling him that another human sacrifice had to be made, so he decided that the opportunity to seek revenge had presented itself. He later told Dr. Lund that, quote, the peace advocates and flower children had played tricks on my mind, and I had to reap vengeance. So that's going to be his next victim type? Yes. Herb decided he had to initially go to the source, the man who first introduced him to drugs and the idea of being anti-war. His old high school friend, Jim Gianera, as well as Bob Francis, another drug dealer. So now he's picking victims. Yes. Yeah, he goes back and forth. On January 25th, 1973, Herb first stopped at a house in the mountains, the house of Bob Francis. Both Bob and Jim had supplied him with drugs over the years. Bob was in Berkeley on a drug deal run, but his wife Kathleen, or Kathy as she was called, answered the door. Herb asked her if she knew where Jim was, and she told him that Jim and his wife had moved to Western Ave in town. He thanked her and headed that way. He's trying to track him down. Exactly. Herb drove to Jim's house. 25-year-old Jim greeted him and let his old friend into his home. Once inside, Herb yelled, quote, You're clap-trapping me. What? <laughs> That's what I said, too. I hadn't heard this term before, so I looked it up, and I believe it means to deceive or brainwash. It's basically telling someone something that sounds important that is actually rubbish. That's an interesting word. Clap-trapping. Word of the day. Go use it in the sentence. <laughs> But I honestly think that Herb believed it. He believed that Jim had clap-trapped him. He then pulled out his gun and shot Jim. Jim tried to get away. He managed to climb up the stairs and headed toward the bathroom where his 21-year-old wife Joan was having a bath. He was yelling at her to lock the bathroom door. 
Oh, he was trying to save her? Yeah. Aww. Herb had shot him in the back, which punctured his lung. So this must have been a struggle for him to get to his wife. When they got up the stairs, Herb bolted through the bathroom door. Once inside the bathroom with the young couple, Herb took his gun and shot both Jim and Joan in the head. Jim was shot three times in total, and Joan was shot twice, once in the neck and once above her left eye. In a fit of overkill, Herb pulled out his knife and began stabbing their deceased bodies. Once satisfied, he just walked out of their house, leaving their bodies inside the bathroom. Did he leave any evidence behind then? Not that I read of. Wow. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't initially be connected to these murders either. Later that same day, Joan's mother discovered the bodies of her daughter and son-in-law. The couple had recently had a baby, and Joan's mother had taken their baby girl for them for a bit. Well, thank goodness she wasn't in the house. Yes. But I cannot fathom what a horrible discovery this would have been for her. You watch your young granddaughter for an afternoon or evening and think you're going to be bringing her home to happy, refreshed parents. Not this. That would have been really horrific. Mm -hmm. Herb's next murders would speak to being more logical or calculated than deluded. He knew that there was someone who knew he was looking for Jim. Kathy Francis, Bob's wife, whom he had asked for directions to Jim's house. Oh, it would be a path straight to him. Yeah. Herb hated jail and didn't want to go back. Or perhaps he saw her as a possible threat to him being able to complete his divine mission. Either way, what he did next was deplorable. Right after killing the Gianneras, Herb headed straight back to Bob and Kathy Francis's home on Mystery Spot Road. He parked down the road so his station wagon wouldn't get stuck in the mud. He walked up to their home and stormed inside. Bob still hadn't returned home from his drug deal, but Kathy wasn't alone. Her two sons, nine-year-old David Hughes and four-year-old Damien Francis, were also home. They were happily playing Chinese checkers together on their bunk bed. Herb first shot 29-year-old Kathy in the chest and head, and then turned his gun on the boys and opened fire. Again, he stabbed all three of them in an act of overkill after they were dead. With these five horrific murders, police again had no reason to suspect Herb. Both of these families had ties to drug dealing, and police thought their murders had to have had something to do with a drug deal gone bad. They were all killed on the same day, and they knew each other and had mutual drug connections. You can see how the police would make that assumption then. Totally. If you hear hoof prints, you think horse, not zebra. Mm -hmm. Bob, Kathy's husband, was the first suspect in the killings, but he was quickly cleared. He gave the police a list of possible suspects, but Herb was not on this list. Herb must have been one of the last people he would have suspected. He hadn't seen him since summer of 1971, one and a half years prior. During this visit in 71, when he did see him, Herb had done 10 hits of acid with Bob and Jim. Bob later said that a few months later, Herb sent them a letter asking them who they were going to vote for. They just laughed this off and never really thought of him again. 10 hits of acid? Yeah. That sounds like a lot. Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't either, but it sounds like a lot. When he said they did 10 hits of acid together, I don't know if between them they did 10 or if they each did 10. I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with the taking of acid. (laughs) I did want to put this in here just really quick that some reports did say that he killed Kathy and her sons right away, but Morris said that he came back to tie up loose ends, which is what I believe happened. Which speaks to him covering his trail. Yeah. So it's definitely becoming more calculated now. Yes. And to me, says that he knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Just a couple of weeks later, Herb would commit a quadruple homicide. On February 10th, Herb was walking in the woods at Henry Cowell State Park. He stumbled upon a large thrown-together campsite. 
Herb immediately recalled when he was in the woods and got arrested. Remember when he grabbed for his hunting knife when the park ranger tried to speak to him and he got hauled to the police station? To Herb, this wasn't fair, and the campers had to pay. The camp was in a spot referred to as the Garden of Eden. It was made out of spare wood and plastic sheets. Four young men had been staying there. 18-year-old David Olicker, 18-year-old Robert Spector, 19-year-old Brian Scott Card, and Mark Dre Bilbus, who was only 15. Herb approached the makeshift tent. When the boys noticed him, they warmly invited him in. But Herb was not there to make friends. He allegedly lied and said that he was a park ranger and told them to pack up and stop polluting and defacing government property. Instead of listening to his orders, the young men laughed at him. Yeah, of course, he's not in a park ranger outfit. Yeah. Did he show up in his hospital scrubs? (laughs) I don't think he did. I think his gown was retired at that point. Herb took out his gun and shot each young man in the head, one by one. Evidence showed that one of the boys, after realizing what was happening, had tried to claw his way through the plastic wall to escape. It happened too fast for any of them to defend themselves or escape. Herb would later say, as in the other murders, that each boy had told him telepathically that he could kill them as a sacrifice. When interviewed, Herb said, quote, I decided to kill them and asked them telepathically if I could, and they all answered yes. They were all in a sitting position, and it was all over in a few seconds. They asked for it. Really, if there was evidence of him trying to claw his way out of the tarp, then it lasted a little bit longer than three seconds. It's true. And to me, that's not the actions of someone who wants you to kill them. No. They did not ask for it, Herb. Herb took the boys' rifle and $20 that was at the campsite and left. (laughs) Because that would help God stave off the earthquake? Well, it would help him in more killings. Does he use it in the next killing? He does. He uses their rifle. I saw these crime scene photos and it is horrific. In a documentary that I watched, one of the police officers commented about how terrible this scene was. Since it was getting dark when they discovered the scene, a few of the officers had to stay at the campsite until morning. This officer was among the ones who had to stay. He made a comment about how as a police officer, you're supposed to be big and tough, but how he was actually terrified staying at that camp throughout the night. Oh, you would be. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that last week in our case, where the one officer had to guard the garden overnight, knowing that there were dead bodies buried there. Right? Would have been so freaky. And you wouldn't know if the perp was going to come back. It would be very unnerving. Yeah. And he was a big, burly guy. And he's like, yeah, I was terrified. I also want to point out that the bodies of the boys who were camping were not found right away. They were found after Herb had been arrested. So at first they did not suspect that Herb could have killed them. It wasn't until their autopsies came back stating that they had been gone for about a week prior to being discovered that they realized that Herb could have done it. And I read that it was one of the boys' brothers who found them when he went searching for them after not hearing from his brother in a while. Oh, that would be so sad. Mm-hmm. Does Herb not confess as soon as he's caught? Not as soon as he's caught. Eventually he confesses to everything, but not right away. Hmm. But he was already in custody when these bodies were found, so they weren't thinking that Herb could have done it. Mm-hmm. The day after the camping massacre, one of Herb's victims was found. This is when the skeletal remains of Herb's second victim, Mary Gilfoyle, was finally found. She was discovered by trap shooters in the area. Although she hadn't been raped like the other hitchhiking victims in the area and had been mutilated to the extreme, police still wasn't sure if she was a victim of the person responsible for killing and beheading hitchhikers. Do you think he purposely tried to imitate Ed Kemper? No, I don't think so. I really think it was because of the Michelangelo book. 
Well, that was the excuse he gave later, but it's a good way to hide your crimes is to blame it on somebody else. But then I think he would have done it again. It was only one out of 13. But he's super smart. So he's changing up his MO all the time. And maybe that's calculated. Maybe. Because there's a less chance that you're going to get caught if your MO changes all the time. It's true. And your victim type is changing all the time. There's no pattern. I think he's just walking around and living life until he thinks someone tells him that he can kill them. Okay. We're going full crazy then. I think so. Wow. You don't often think that, Christy. No. I do think he has some hidden agenda in there by choosing some of his victims. But even if that was subconsciously, I don't know. Hmm. But he did admit that with the ones involved in drugs, he was going to get his vengeance. That's not subconscious then. No, it's true. I did go back and forth a little bit, and we're going to talk about it during the trial a bit. Okay. But when Mary's remains were found, police issued another warning to women in the area regarding hitchhiking. This would have been a scary time in California. I just keep picturing her entrails hanging from the trees. That would be awful. Terrible. Which shows that he had no respect for his victims. Oh, no, obviously not. No. On February 13th, only three days after the campsite murders, Herbert Mullen would strike for the 13th and final time. On this day, he was supposed to pick up firewood and drop it off at his parents' house for them. Herb said that all of a sudden he received a telepathic message from his father that said, quote, Don't deliver a stick of wood until you kill somebody. Herb said the voice told him to kill Uncle Enos, but he resisted the thought. He didn't want to kill Uncle Enos. Herb said the voice told him to just pick anybody then, but that he had to kill someone. The earth needed another blood sacrifice because the earth would get its blood one way or another. Herb got in his station wagon and set out to find someone. It was early in the morning and still foggy out when he drove by the home of Fred Abbey Perez. Fred was 72 years old and was a retired prize fighter and fishmonger. Many speculate that Fred was not chosen at random, but was picked to represent Herb's time spent as a boxer. So interesting, the connections. Yes. Who's making the connections? Is it us trying to fit all the pieces together and make sense of it? Or was he actually lucid? Yeah, it's hard to say. Fred was working in his yard and was standing on his driveway. Herb turned around and stopped in front of Fred's driveway where he stood. He pulled out the rifle that he had stolen from the campers and shot Fred once in the heart, killing him instantly. Herb just sat there for a moment holding the rifle and looking at the man that he had just killed. Herb later said that he had actually respected Fred and had looked up to him. I don't think he knew him personally, but knew of him because he was a prized fighter. He said he didn't really know why he shot Fred, so perhaps he was just sitting there registering what he had just done. The prosecution would later argue that this killing was Herb's way of asking to be caught. Because he had finished 13. Yeah, maybe. But he sat there for a while. Was he in a stupor or zoned out when they found him? No, he does leave before the police find him. But thankfully, because he was there for a while, this time someone saw what Herb had done. A neighbor heard the gunshot and quickly ran to their window to see what had happened. The neighbor saw Herb parked outside of Fred's home. They called the police and gave a good description of the station wagon, along with the license plate number, and told police that the dirtbag was headed toward Felton. A police heard the APB, All Points Bulletin, on the suspect and pulled over Herb soon afterwards without backup. Herb was found with his station wagon full of firewood for his parents and the rifle laid on the front seat beside him covered with a paper bag. The officer easily arrested Herb. He didn't put up any type of fight and was described as being docile. Hmm. 
Without an eventual confession, I'm not sure that police would have connected Herb to all of his victims. And at no fault of their own, Herb didn't have a set victim type. They were various genders, ages, 4 to 72, and races. Nor did he have a set method of killing. He beat, bludgeoned, stabbed, and shot his victims. He knew only some of his victims and ranged in killing just one at a time to multiple murders at a time or on the same day. His M.O. was all over the place. Plus, as I mentioned, other killers like Kemper were active in the same area at this time. Imagine working homicide in California, Santa Cruz area at this time. It would have been a nightmare. We know that Herb went on to give a full confession, but at first, when taken to the police station, all he would do is shout the word, silence, over and over again when spoken to, as well as chant it to himself when no one was even talking to him. Police could only take this for so long before taking him to a cell for holding. As they did, he hollered out that they were all responsible for the 3 million people killed in World War II. Police inspected his apartment and were able to find some evidence to connect him to some of the murders. They found news article clippings about the most recent murders, the priest's rosary, and an address book that had Jim Gianera's information written in it. I found it odd that he kept the rosary but didn't take any other tokens from any of his other 12 victims. Perhaps it was just more about the rosary than it was a token. They also found a note that read, quote, Let it be known to the nations of earth and the people that inhabit it. This document carries more power than any other written before. Such a tragedy as what has happened should not have happened, and because of this action will I take of my own free will, I am making it possible to occur again. For while I can be here, I must guide and protect my dynasty. I'm not sure I understand that statement, Christy. Nope. And that's why I thought I would read it. Because it just shows where his mental state was. He wasn't intending anyone to actually read this. There were other statements as well, but I just thought I would share one. Ballistics connected him to the five drug-related murders. Herb was first charged with six counts of murder. When the boys' bodies were found at the campsite on February 17th, they added their murders to his list of charges. Herb then decided he might as well tell the police about the first three murders as well. Surprisingly, he was not initially charged with the first three murders, even though his fingerprint matched the print found at Father Tomei's crime scene. The judicial system had a large task in front of them. There were 13 murders to sort through, and they had the difficult job of deciding if Herbert Mullen was eligible for the insanity plea. It would be a difficult job to decide this, because I find I'm still sitting on the fence about it. It's true. Because for some of the things, he seems like he is calculated. And then other things, it sounds like he's right off the wall. So true. I felt like that way when I was researching. Herb's hearing occurred on March 1st. He surprised everyone by trying to plead guilty. The judge told him he could not just plead guilty to 10 murders. Herb then said he didn't want a long-haired lawyer and wanted to represent himself. He again was adamant that he pleaded guilty to all the murders. And I thought it was kind of ironic because later in his life, you can see pictures of him with really long hair. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. You would think that this is every judge's dream, to have a dirtbag just admit to his wrongdoings and save a lengthy trial. However, this judge had forethought and knew that if he allowed this plea to go through without a psych evaluation, the Supreme Court would throw out the case. Herb was examined by multiple psychiatrists. Each one of them concluded that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Everyone agreed that Herb was severely mentally ill. The next question, however, was if he knew what he was doing was wrong when he did it. If he knew it was wrong, he would be guilty. If not, he would not be criminally responsible for his actions and could use the insanity defense. 
Other questions that arose was if Herb tried to hide his actions and if he had diminished capacity, meaning he didn't really understand his actions. While sitting in jail, Herb began writing out his theories on Einstein, the earthquakes, and the Bible stories like Jonah's. His defense would later use these scribblings to try and prove his insanity. Also, while awaiting his trial and fate, as I mentioned at the beginning of this case, dirtbag Herbert Mullen met and interacted with fellow dirtbag Edmund Kemper. Which is just so wild. It really is. It was said that someone at the prison thought it would be hilarious to put Herb and Ed in adjoining cells and see what would happen. I think I might have been that person. I was just going to say, when I read that, I thought of you. I was like, Melissa would be the one to be like, why not? Let's put them next door and see what happens. <laughs> it would be such a good experiment. It would. I just want to see what they say to each other. Yep. Can't it's a controlled environment. Yeah, I can't blame them for doing it. If you look at pictures of the pair side by side, it's almost comical. Ed was a large man, standing six feet nine inches tall, and Herb was very small in stature. It was also ironic that Ed had major mommy issues and Herb had daddy issues. Ed had fun taunting, experimenting with, and exerting his power over his next door cellmate. There is an interview online that you can watch of Ed Kemper describing Herb and their relationship, and it is fascinating to watch. If you've ever seen an interview with Ed, I'm sure you know what I mean when I say he is eerily intelligent. I feel like he could easily manipulate you if you were not careful. Ed called Herb, quote, a creep with no class. He didn't buy the voices telling him to kill thing. He said that Herb, quote, was just a cold-blooded killer, killing everyone he saw for no good reason. He also said this about his own statement, quote, I guess that's kind of hilarious, me sitting here so self-righteously talking like that. After what I've done. That is so interesting. It is. Ed talks about how he practiced behavior modification experiments on Herb. Oh my goodness. Yes. Which again speaks to his ability to manipulate the people in situations around him. To the other inmates, Herb was annoying. He would purposely sing really loud when he knew the other inmates were trying to watch TV. Ed said that he didn't like peanuts, but found out that Herb loved them. So he got a bunch of small bags of peanuts. When Herb would sing to sabotage TV time, Ed started out by throwing water on him. At first, he would miss a lot of the time. Their cells were adjoining, so they couldn't directly see each other. Ed then got the inmate across from him to show him systematically without Herb realizing where Herb was standing in his cell. He's so smart. Yes. Once this happened, Ed would hit him with the water pretty much every single time. Herb was floored and couldn't figure out how Ed was always able to get him wet. Ed would reinforce Herb's good behavior of stopping his singing by handing him a package of peanuts. He said he could see this tiny hand reach out of the bars, but at first Herb was scared to take the peanuts from Ed. He assumed he was fearful that he would grab his arm and pull. And honestly, Ed could have probably ripped his arm off if he did. Ed then decided to just chuck in the bag of peanuts until Herb came to trust taking them from him. He Pavlov dogged him? He did. That well, is totally insane. Behavior modification. He did it. Mm -hmm. And to him, he's just like, I'm just going to see if I can do this. He was having fun with it. And Herb didn't know he was becoming this experiment of Edmund Kemper's. Did he do that to other prisoners he was put beside as well? I can't imagine that he didn't. Yeah. Like I said, eerily intelligent. I just feel like Ed Kemper would always be a few steps ahead of you, of me anyway. About this experiment, Ed said, quote, Well, 
Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people when somebody tried to watch TV, so I threw water on him to shut him up. Then, when he was a good boy, I'd give him some peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. That was effective, because pretty soon he asked permission to sing. That's called behavior modification treatment. It's true. (laughs) It is. In the interview, it appears that Ed actually had a soft spot for Herbie, as he called him. He said he knew there was a, quote, kindred spirit there. He also recognized that Herb had a, quote, lot of pain inside. He had a lot of anguish inside. He had a lot of hate inside. And it was addressed to people he didn't even know because he didn't dare do anything to the people he knew. Hmm. That's so insightful. It really is. This was just too interesting not to share. Ed said he told Herb, quote, Herbie, I know what happened. Don't give me that BS about earthquakes and don't give me that crap about God was telling you. I says you couldn't even talk to me now if God talking to you because of the pressure I'm putting on you right now. These little shocking insights into what you did, God would start talking to you right now if you were that kind of ill because I grew up with people like that. So he's basically telling Herb that you can't turn that on and off. No, if he knows God, crazy. Right. Exactly. I've seen people like this and they can't turn it off. Mm -hmm. You would be getting these messages from God right now while I'm talking to you. So he's calling his bluff. I won't go into a bunch of more detail about this interview, but if you are interested, it's really easy to find on YouTube. Just Google search it and it'll come up. It sounds fascinating. It really was. It made me more scared of Edmund Kemper (laughs) than anything else. And because too, when he's talking, like you would not think that he's a serial killer. You're thinking you're talking to a professor or something. Hmm. And he was a gross serial killer. (laughs) He was a bad one. After being evaluated by actual professionals, not just a fellow serial killer, Herb was deemed not competent to represent himself, but it was determined that he was competent to stand trial for all 10 counts of murder. His trial began on July 30th, 1973, and his defense would enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. During the trial, Herb explained how he heard voices telling him to kill and how he had to kill these people to prevent a devastating earthquake. He referred to these messages that he received as die songs. The defense was able to prove that Herb had genuinely been concerned about death rates and natural disasters when they were able to show that he had written letters to the UN, as well as other organizations requesting stats on annual death rates and natural disasters. He requested these items years prior to his killing spree, so he wasn't making that part up. During court proceedings, Herb went on a rant that someone had gone through his personal notebook. Outside of that, he acted calm most of the time. He would slowly rock back and forth in his chair or just sit and stare with little to no emotion. When Herb finally took the stand, I am not sure that the people in the courtroom were prepared mentally for what was going to take place. I will highlight just some of it, but believe me when I tell you it was a wild ride. Well, he has to sell the story, right? Yes. This just makes sense. It's true. It comes as no big surprise that Herb blamed everyone else in his life for the mistakes that he had made. One of the people he blamed the most was his father. Here's where we're coming back to it. Which I totally don't understand. It sounds like his dad was supportive. He was. But Herb twisted things in his past to fit his delusion. As I mentioned, Herb's father would play boxing with his son in the family home. During court, Herb said these matches that took place in the kitchen before dinner were deadly challenges presented to him by his sadistic father. But the family didn't support that. No. It was in the middle of the kitchen with everybody there. They were just play fighting. But at this point, he's twisting around those memories. 
He said that both of his parents were, quote, killjoy reincarnationalists who believe that by spoiling the enjoyment of others, they improve their birth position in the next life. Oh. He also believed that taking lives in this life would give you more power in the next. He said his parents sabotaged his chance at getting into the military for this reason. But because you said he believed that if you took lives, you would get in a better life in the next. Yeah. So doesn't that belief seem self-serving since he's the one doing the killing? Oh, absolutely. But he's not looking at it that way. He's also saying that if you wreck someone's joy in this life, it'll give you a better birth position next time. So he's saying that's why his parents were trying to ruin his life. Yeah. If he was miserable, they would do better next time. Okay. And if he kills X amount of people, he will do that much better in the next life too. Yes, he'll become very powerful. Hmm. Ironically, instead of looking inward, he blamed his dad. He even accused his father of telepathically ordering his best friend Dean to kill himself in the motor vehicle accident. What? Yeah. Which to me, like, that was the catalyst, that accident. Mm -hmm. So how long had he believed these things? Did he actually believe them? I think that he did. I think he spiraled right from when he got out of high school. I think there was some red flags happening then when he just could not get over or understand his best friend's death. And then it was soon after that that he got into the drugs and the schizophrenia blossomed and it just was kind of a perfect storm. But was this story about his dad ordering his friend's death, was that a new one? Or is that something that he had believed right from the very beginning? I'm not sure how long he believed it, but I think it did evolve. I think he had believed it for a while. Interesting. Herb also said that his father threatened to kill anyone who tried to be his friend as a child and went door to door telling people to stay away from him. But we know Herb was super popular in high school. He then accused his father of being a mass murderer and taunted the court to take his father's fingerprints and find out. He wanted them to test his prints with every unsolved murder since 1925 in the states of California and Oregon. He also reiterated how his father ordered him to kill telepathically. About his father, he said, quote, Father was a Marine Corps sergeant and was used to ordering people to kill. I feel like I was under my father's control like a robot. What did his dad say about all this? I didn't hear any quotes from the dad after, but his dad was there during the court proceedings. I just think as a parent, this would have been heartbreaking. Do you know how guilty you feel when your kids blame you for something that you've mistakenly done or you haven't done? But yeah. Oh, yeah. We have parental guilt so badly anyways without our children saying it's all your fault. Yeah, I cannot imagine. Because even his mom, he blamed what he did to Mary on his mom. And she was just trying to help him. Hopefully they rationally knew that it wasn't their fault at all. Oh, I hope so. Before Herb initially spoke, he asked that his dad be removed from the courtroom. And that was not going to happen. But they did move his father to a different place in the room so Herb didn't have to look at him. Because he couldn't lie to his face? Maybe. That's what I was thinking. And this next part is going to blow your mind. So brace yourself. Herb blamed his father for repressing him sexually. He said, quote, and listen closely to this one, I believe that my father has been unequally blamed for my failures, but surely if he had given me the six-year-old homosexual blowjob oral stimulation that I was entitled to, like most other people get, I would have never taken LSD without his permission. What? So basically... That if my father stimulated me sexually when I was a child, none of this would have happened. Just when you think you've heard it all, there is this. What? 
he was talking about how he thought his cousins who were similar ages they were getting orgasms as children and that's why they all turned out okay because their fathers were giving the blowjobs that's what he was saying i don't think that that was true but he's like my father wouldn't stimulate me orally and give me an orgasm when i was six years old and so it's his fault that is such an interesting statement but he said it with conviction like he believed it So either he's a super good actor or this is just really how deluded he had become. I secretly want to know what Ed had to say about it. Could you imagine? Imagine being in the courtroom. Who wouldn't have spit out their drink when they heard that? It's one of the wildest quotes I've ever heard from a court proceeding. Yeah. Because my father didn't sexually abuse me. Where usually it's because my father sexually abused me. So the jury has to find him guilty, obviously. Herb also declared on trial that he was the chosen leader of this generation, and people were just trying to stop him from being too powerful in the next life. When asked about his victims, he said, quote, I never thought about them. I wasn't thinking. I don't think. I'm reacting. Meaning reacting to their telepathic messages to kill them as blood sacrifice. So why would I feel bad when they volunteered? No guilt or remorse. No The prosecution argued that just because someone is paranoid schizophrenic and hears voices doesn't mean that they are automatically going to become a murderer. They pointed out that most can distinguish between right and wrong and will not follow everything the voices tell them to do. Herb kind of gave them ammunition for this point when he said he didn't listen to the voices all of the time. The voices had told him to kill himself, but he didn't want to do that, so he didn't. The prosecution said, quote, If he was the victim of irresistible voices, he would have killed himself. And I want to point out that he also did not kill his uncle when instructed to do so. So he did have some sense of control. The prosecution also argued that some of his killings proved premeditation and personal motivation or vendetta. It was also pointed out that Herb tried to hide his killings. An example of this was taking sandpaper to sand off the blood from his baseball bat after bludgeoning Whitey to death. He had also filed off the serial number from his gun. They claimed that Herb killed out of hatred and revenge. The defense said that if a man can kill 13 people and not really know why, then he had to be mad. The prosecution argued, quote, There's no question he's mentally ill, seriously mentally ill, but that does not mean he's legally insane. And Dr. Lund, who had examined Herb, stated that mentally ill people are actually less likely to kill people than those who are sane if you take murders as a whole. Mm -hmm. In the end, on August 19th, Herb's jury of six men and six women, after deliberating for 14 hours, found him guilty of eight counts of second-degree murder and guilty of two counts of first-degree murder for the murder of Kathy Francis and Jim Gianera. The first-degree murders were considered planned, and the other ones were impulse-driven. Herb was sentenced to two concurrent life sentences with the possibility of parole for the two first-degree charges as well as eight concurrent five-year-to-life sentences for the eight second-degree murder charges. That's not a lot of time. That's not. They should have been consecutive, Mm -hmm. not concurrent. He was ordered to be imprisoned at the Mule Creek State Prison in California. Herb was charged with Father Tomei's murder on December 11th of the same year. Before the trial began, Herb pleaded guilty and received a life imprisonment charge for this murder. I could not find any documentation of him being charged with Mary's nor Whitey's murders. I hope he was, and I just didn't find it. Regardless, we know that he did murder them. He admitted to it. I doubt he was, though, because why bother at that point? Well, it's not like he got, like, life with no parole. It's true. One more interesting fact about this trial. 
is that President Ronald Reagan was thrown under the bus and named partially responsible for these murders. He didn't. (laughs) This case just keeps on giving, Melissa. Reagan's administration had been closing down California's mental hospitals one by one with the plan to deactivate all of them over the span of a few years. The jury foreman felt so passionately about this that after the trial, he wrote Ronald Reagan a letter and said that Herb needed psychiatric care, care that he was unable to receive. Part of his letter read, quote, Five times prior to young Mr. Mullins' arrest, he was entered into mental hospitals, and five times his illness was diagnosed. At least twice it was determined his illness could cause danger to lives of human beings. Yet in January and February of this year, he was free to take the lives of Santa Cruz residents. So was this accusation flung by, like, just the general public? Or was this one of Herb's defenses? That I'm not sure. But it did come out in trial. So I guess someone had brought it up. Wow. Because then it was the jury foreman that was like, what? And was like, okay, I'm writing Ronald Reagan a letter. Mm Mm-hmm. If Herb's parents had been able to have Herb committed in a private facility, it would have cost them $100 a day. Today, that is over $700 U.S. dollars and almost $1,000 Canadian per day. So who can afford that? Reagan allegedly responded that it had been a quote-unquote psychiatric mistake, and a year later a bill was passed to prohibit the closure of psychiatric hospitals. That is interesting. Yeah, so at least something good came from this. It gives you hope that you can write a letter and somebody will do something about it. Right. I think as the president, you don't want anyone blaming you for things like this. No. And honestly, they should not be closing psychiatric hospitals. No, not at all. Herb was eligible for parole in 2021 when he was 74. I think he was originally eligible in 2020, but I'm guessing that COVID put a wrench in that plan for him. Thankfully, his parole was denied. He had also made numerous appeals that were denied. On August 18th, 2022, Herb Mullen died from natural causes at the age of 75 while being housed at the California Health Care Facility. I am assuming his incarceration was uneventful because I didn't read otherwise. Hopefully that meant he received the treatment he needed. I'm going to end with one last quote by Herb. He said, quote, We human beings, through the history of the world, have protected our continent from catalysms by murder. In other words, a minor natural disaster avoids a major natural disaster. Wow. And that is the case of a delusional man who said he believed he was killing to save California from the mass destruction of earthquakes. The dirtbag who refused to take responsibility for his despicable actions. Serial killer, Herbert Mullen. I'm not sure how I feel, Christy. There's so much to dissect with this case. Yeah, I can't decide if he's crazy or... If he did these things all on purpose, I just don't buy his, we're saving the world from natural disasters. I think he believed it. He had ordered all those statistical reports a couple years prior. Maybe. I don't know. For some reason, I just don't see it in his actions. So you agree with Edmund Kemper? Yes, yes, I do, actually. (laughs) He was just a cold-blooded killer. I think I do. I don't know. I think maybe it started out that way, but then it evolved into him just killing whoever he wanted to kill. Right. And perhaps after some of the killings, like he had twisted his memories with his father, maybe he twisted his memories of the killings and his motivation to fit it. Maybe he was fooling even himself. Maybe. He is just one deranged dirtbag. That's what I can conclude. On either side of the fence, that's (laughs) what he is. 
Either way, yes, he was deranged. And either way, we'll be back with you next week with another case. Until then. See ya. Bye. Testing, testing. That's what Christy always says when we're testing, testing. I do. I start it like that every time. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm researching again. I'm, Quit I'm t- researching. You're done. Your notes. <laughs> no more. You can have 199 pages, but not 200. <laughs> we're being so weird today. I know. Okay. Because of his good grades. Grabes. He had grabes. some grades. Well, I was looking at Herb. <laughs> after and I had grades and I just now I want grapes <laughs> I got grapes <laughs> sounds like <laughs> yeah. once it was out of my mouth I was like oh that does not sound right <laughs> like you can keep your grapes to yourself <laughs> we're friends but we don't have to share everything you want to go to San Francisco Christy <laughs> <laughs> I do but not with your grapes <laughs> Now I have to decide if I put that in there or not. <laughs> no, you don't put that in there. Are you crazy, woman? Yep. Use a fence sitter, Christy. <laughs> you know what I think about those fence sitters. <laughs> Which we'll get into more later during his confession. Why? Which Is we that... will get into more later no. during his Tell confession. No. Which we will get into more later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I put that in there so you wouldn't be like, why? Because <laughs> you knew I was going to be like... We'll power through. I'm a nurse. I can ignore my bladder for hours. Not me. Who, who believed that by, who, uh, who believed that by spoiling, ah, uh, who what believed? Did they believe, Christy? I'm trying to tell you, but my brain's done. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.